Open with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans, the book of Romans chapter 6. We'll read in a few moments from verses, verse 1 all the way through verse 14. Well, the occasion for today's sermon is the baptism of Zach Jaquette, our brother in the Lord, whom we'll baptize later in the service. And that's why we're in Romans 6 today. It's a classic and crucial passage on baptism. And when we think of baptism, we may tend to think of robes and water and such. But friends, baptism is a violent image. It is an image of being put to death and raised to new life. The violent image, a picture of new life. But more than a picture, it's propulsion for the walk in newness of life. Oh, what grace. Let's read together. Romans 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now, if we've died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin, therefore, reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law but under grace. Well, what does baptism mean? Who is it for? How does it work in our lives? And what should we be thinking a little later on in the morning when we baptize our brother in Christ? All these questions will be answered in this text in some fashion. But first, a word about what kind of sermon this is. Uh, I was an 80s kid, so I had my share of hamburger helper. Today after church, we're having some folks over for burgers, and there will be no hamburger helper. I don't need hamburger helper My hamburgers don't need any help. There's been, um, you know, that stuff was just around along with all kinds of other foods, processed foods. Let me say a bit about processed versus organic sermons or topical versus expositional preaching. Every chef has his approach and every preacher has his his approach. So let's talk about approach for a bit. We come to Romans 6 today because we're baptizing a brother. That's why I drove into this book and to this chapter And a topical sermon might come to this passage for what we can learn about baptism. And maybe I would have a list of points or truths about baptism from the passage, all of them true. 
but we might learn the truth, truths about baptism, and miss the point being conveyed in the passage. There's a danger in treating a passage like material for a sermon, even if it's good material answering a good question. Too much processing when we come to a passage with a topic in mind for answers related to that topic. It is not wrong to do that. There are better and worse topical sermons. Systematic theology, if you're familiar with that, comes to the Bible with questions to synthesize what the Bible says for answers. But if we don't start with the Bible on its own terms to hear what it's trying to get across, what the Spirit of God through the Word is trying to get across apart from our questions, we won't hear it right and ultimately we'll miss what it truly has to offer us in answer to the question that drove us into the passage. We want an organic sermon. And if we're to hear something about baptism today, let it be in the context of what the Spirit of God was getting, a, getting across in the course in which it came up. So we'll work through this passage in three steps. A question, an answer, and then a conclusion. I do not get paid for outlines. I think that one will serve us, though. First, a question. Sin so that grace may abound? Sin so that grace may abound? Where'd that come from? Verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Well, Paul asks it. If I sin more, won't God get to share more grace? That's the suggestion. And isn't that what he loves doing? So if I love sinning and he loves showing grace, isn't that a true win-win? A pro-move? An absurd question, right? Who's asking it? Well, many have. French skeptic, Voltaire, God will forgive, that is his business. W.H. Auden, I like committing crimes, God likes forgiving them, the world is admirably arranged. Let me tell you, if you are not asking that question, you have come up with dumber rationalizations for sinning more. Sin always is on the hunt for an excuse to sin. Sin is always on the lookout for a way to be unrighteous and feel righteous about it. And sometimes it's obnoxiously bold in that task. As Christians, in our seek to do unrighteousness and feel righteous, we're often a lot more sneaky. And here's a question. Well, maybe God can get what he wants and I can get what I want. Why is he raising the question? Well, it may well be that Paul has heard this kind of question before in the course of his teaching. Maybe he heard it from somebody who genuinely wanted to sin more, like they're trying to connect the dots. They hear his gospel of grace, and this question is raised on their account for their sake. Or maybe he heard it from someone who objected to his gospel because it sounds inevitably to lead to that question. Well, if the gospel is truly free, if salvation is free, then why not continue to sin? Why shall we not sin that grace may abound? Well, whatever the case, apparently, Paul's gospel of grace actually raises this question so that he gives this whole half a chapter, at least we're spending on this part here, to answering it. Which means if you have not asked the question, either personally or hypothetically, it may well be because you do not know the grace of God for what it is, forever and free. It is provocatively, difficultly free, uncomfortably free. 
In fact, if you have heard the grace of God for what it is, you can't at some point not ask the question. We're in Romans 6. How did we get here? Well, Romans 1 through 3 showed us the problem of sin. And the problem of sin is not a problem between us and other people in the first place. It's not a a merely a moral internal problem, a conflict within the person. It is at base a conflict between the human person and his or her maker, God, the Lord of the universe. The problem of sin is a problem between us and God, a problem with us and God's righteousness. God is righteous, but his righteousness is not revealed in us. It's revealed against us because of our unrighteousness. We see his power and his nature revealed in everything is made, but we trade the glory of God for the glory of what he has made, and we trade the truth of God for a lie, and we prefer the lie, and we prefer the creation to the truth and to our maker. Even the man who has never heard the written word of God has the law written on his heart, and that's why he defends himself or accuses himself or accuses others of wrong. He knows that up is up and down is down, and he and all of us know, apart from the written, revealed word of God, that lying and murder and stealing are wrong. At least we know it when it happens to us. God will uphold his righteousness. The Jews who have the law, they're good at keeping it. As a blind person is at seeing, so the Old Testament shows us, and Paul says in Romans 2, even as they speak it, they do, not, they do the opposite and don't recognize the contradiction. God will uphold his righteousness. No one is righteous. No, not one. He'll catalog a list of scriptures from the Old Testament to corner not only the person who's a Gentile, but also the Jew. Everyone, every person is condemned under sin. No one is righteous. No, not one. No one actually seeks God, and God will uphold his righteousness, and that's not good for us. But that's where grace comes in. And so we hear this concerning God's righteousness and sin in Romans 3.21. But now, but now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. There's no distinction. All have sinned. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show the righteousness, God's righteousness, Because in his divine forbearance, he'd passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. There is a righteousness that is available to the unrighteous that is apart from their works and effort. And apart from the Mosaic system, law that God had given, it is available on account of faith, just as Abraham was counted righteous on account of of his faith. It is a gift. And it is offered not because of our works, but because of the work of Jesus on the cross, who died there, a spotless lamb, but who suffered for the sins of his people. That's what it means by propitiation. He absorbed the wrath of God for us. And so God's wrath is diverted away from us onto Christ, 
so that God remains just, he punishes sin, but he can call us justified. He's also the justifier, the one that clears the guilty. All of that right there in Romans 3. And you can't appreciate it without the harsh cornering, condemnation, tight argument, airtight of Romans chapters 1 through 3. All are condemned under sin, but there's a righteousness apart from works. How is that possible? How can God make sinners righteous and stay righteous himself? Exactly, it's through Jesus' death. And where is our boasting then? Well, exactly. We take no credit for this. There is only God getting credit forever. To believe, for all who believe, through faith, he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Faith is not a work. Faith is merely receiving. Faith in Jesus is to say, I contribute nothing, and it is to receive all that he gives. Our part, in other words, our contribution, in other words, is not really a contribution. It is merely a reception. Romans 4 illustrates what exactly this means with the picture of a gift. If you give someone a gift, that's a gift. If you give someone a wage after they work, that is not a gift. Salvation is a gift. Almost hard to believe. He's got to give us an illustration like that to make sure we're getting it. And he roots it in the history of the Bible story. It goes all the way back to Abraham. After Noah, there was no, fix, there was, there was no coming around for humanity. It wasn't long after Noah's flood that we built the Tower of Babel. It wasn't going well. The problem of sin ran deep, and everywhere humans were, sin spread. And so with sin, death spread. No hope for humanity. There is only hope through righteousness from God on account of faith. Romans 5 Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into his grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Sinners may rejoice in the hope of the glory of God and stand in his grace through faith. What more can we say about this grace? Well, he says in verse 6 of chapter 5, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die, maybe. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Verse 14 of chapter 5, death reigned, mark that word, from Adam to Moses. One man brought sin and death and condemnation, Adam One man, Jesus, brings life and righteousness and peace. Romans 15, 5, 15. The free gift. It's not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Grace abounds for many through the gift and its freeness of salvation. In verse 17, death reigned through that one man, Adam. Life reigns through Jesus. In verse 19, for as by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. 
And it is true that we are made righteous and that we are given righteousness. It is also true in the final day in the new creation, we'll be fully complete. We will be righteous. Not there because we were, but there because of God. And this is what we call the great exchange, where Jesus on the cross takes all that is ours and gives us all that is his. If you look at the whole Bible story, if you were to sum it up into two names, two words, it would be Adam and it would be Christ. There is the creation that is condemned under Adam and all of humanity condemned under Adam. And then there is the new Adam, the new man, Christ who comes, who dies to take away our sin, but who is raised a new creation, the firstborn of a new creation. And as we're raised with him, we're a part of that new creation and we belong to him. Adam represents all of humanity, but Christ represents a new humanity. That Christ-Adam pairing is underneath everything Paul is saying here. Then he says this in Romans 5.20, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, it reigned in death. It ruled over death and in death. Grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He raises the question of the law as the law was given to Moses at Sinai and included direction for the life of Israel, Abraham's children, now a nation. It included a sacrificial system and a priesthood and a whole way of addressing sin and moral commands for ordering their life and just about every level. What was that all about? Well, it didn't actually work. It didn't fix the problem of the human heart. God made plain his character and his nature and his glory and his ways, certainly his grace and the Exodus deliverance, and he gave his people his word, his law, And all that happened as a matter of pattern was sin increased. Now, there were some faithful. There were many who were obedient. When Jesus arrives on the scene, there are some eagerly awaiting for him. But on the whole, the law actually increased the problem. It didn't fix the problem. And so the Mosaic Covenant, God's law through Moses, can't fix the problem. We need a new fix. And grace is the fix. Not that there was no grace in the law, but that this new covenant is marked from beginning to end with God's saving grace. Our problem was so obnoxious that when God gave us his glorious law, we rejected him all the more strongly. Which leads us to ask, if we would reject him to that extent, given all of his grace to rescue Israel and to save and to instruct and to lead and his mighty wonders, What kind of grace would save sinners like that? It is free grace. And so we ask, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? It's kind of an obvious question. What incredible grace is this? And it's the kind of question we might ask, given the kind of sinners that we are. And maybe you've asked that. Maybe you've thought, no way could I go to Christianity. It gives salvation away. It gives warrant to do anything. Or maybe you've schemed away to indulge sin by asking the question yourself. Shall we sin that grace may abound? The Bible is clear. Grace is free. So free we ask this kind of question. What's there to stop us from sinning all we want then? An obvious question to the one who has only heard of God's grace. But 
an inconceivable question to those who actually know it, which explains Paul's answer. And that's where we're at now. We've asked a question, now an answer. Don't you know what grace does? Don't you know what grace does? That's a way of capturing this section from verses 2 through 11. You ask the question on the one hand because you have understood the freeness of grace. But you ask the question on the other hand because you have not understood the effectiveness of grace. You have not understood what it does. Sin so grace may abound. Three parts to Paul's response to that question. Here's the first. By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? No. No, no, he says. Protest is his first response. By no means. It's emphatic. Because he's trying to compensate for what grace might make them want to do. So he's offered free grace and now he makes sure he hollers at them to scare him away from taking advantage of it in sin. Like we told him about grace, now we have to yell at them so they don't sin. Because they will have no motive otherwise not to sin. No, he's not trying to compensate for what grace might make them want to do. He is correcting their deficient view of what grace actually does. And this is what he'll unpack in the verses to follow. He asks, how can we who died to sin still live in it? If you kill something, how can it jump around and sprint and swim like nothing happened to it? This past week, our family... Uh, was together, and we found a small mouse. It's a very small mouse, about that big, laying on its side. Eyes wide open, dead. Not moving, not running, not hunting, dead. That's what grace did to sin. It kills it. Now we must ask ourselves, is Paul saying we can't actually technically sin anymore? And we would say, no, he's not saying that. He's going to command us to not let sin reign, precisely because we can let sin reign. Remember this two-era thing, the era of of Adam and the era of Christ. We don't belong to the sphere, to the realm, to the area that is dominated by Adam and death that he brought and condemnation. We're released from that. We belong to Christ and to life, and to his new creation. It does not reign anymore. At all. That's what he means. So we ought not act like it. He'll explain. He follows up with with protest, with a picture. Verse 3. Now a picture. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, don't you know how grace works? Don't you know what grace does? Look at baptism, the sign of a covenant. We all need to do this this morning. We may not be asking exactly the question that is raised here, sin so grace may may abound, but we're all scheming to sin some more and feel good about it. Look at baptism, he says, a sign, 
A sign that signifies spiritual realities, not a sign that brings about spiritual realities apart from the grace God gives us in remembering what baptism pictures and the salvation God brings. Baptism is a sign. It's a picture. It's a way, in this way, it serves as shorthand for the whole of what happens at conversion. Do not think of a person being joined to Jesus in the act of baptism. I'm fully convinced from speaking with Zach and hearing his testimony and getting to know him over these last weeks and few months that he believes and on account of faith, righteousness is credited to him and if he died right now, he would be safe before his baptism. Baptism does not join him to Jesus or make him safe in Jesus. When Paul wants to tell us about how we're joined to Christ and converted, he speaks in terms of faith, faith, faith. Every chapter of this book of Romans ringing with faith. Here in two verses in this book, he talks about baptism and he's not talking about how we became Christians, how we're converted. He's insisting that we have been converted and he is preaching to us all that that means for us. He's picking up baptism in this moment for that specific purpose. So like saying, listen, son, you put a ring on her finger, you stay with your your wife. He's saying, listen, Christian, you've been baptized into Christ. You walk in newness of life. The sign is paired with the reality so that you can speak of them in interchangeable ways. But the event of conversion and the event of baptism don't need to be simultaneous and baptism does not create faith it expresses faith and pictures what faith in Christ does a long way of saying a long way of saying which you'll hear a lot around here baptism doesn't save Christ saves baptism signifies how that happens why this particular picture why did God pick this particular picture What is he trying to get across? Let's linger on that. I suppose God could have given us a picture of a bank robbery. So to picture your salvation, rob a bank. We make out like bandits with great riches at no cost to ourselves. Or he could have given us the sign of a gift. And actually that's used in the book of Romans as a picture to illustrate how salvation by grace through faith works. How it comes to us, not as payment for works done, but as a free gift of grace. But God, when he selected a sign of his new covenant salvation, selected baptism. Baptism from the word baptizo, which means to immerse, to go under. And as we meditate on this picture, which is supposed to be projected onto our minds as we listen to Paul, is a personal picture. And it's a complete picture. And it's a shocking picture. It's also, to those who receive it, a clear picture. Here's from commentator Leon Morris. He writes, Paul's question implies that this is something that Roman Christians would have expected to know. Since Paul had not been to Rome, he plainly regards this teaching as knowledge common to all Christians. We may perhaps miss something of what he's saying, Because for us, baptism evokes liturgical associations. It points to a comforting and inspiring piece of ceremony. But in the first century, while the verb could denote this ceremony, and Paul certainly means that here, to baptize evoked associations of violence, 
It meant to immerse rather than dip. It was used, for example, of people being drowned or of ships being sunk. Josephus used it metaphorically of crowds who flooded into Jerusalem and wrecked the city. It is quite in keeping with this that Jesus referred to his death as a baptism. And when it's applied to a Christian initiation, we ought not think in terms of gentleness and inspiration. It means death, death to a whole way of life. It is this that is Paul's point here. Christians are people who have died, and their baptism emphasizes that death. Death runs through this passage and is mentioned in every verse up to 13. We should not let the modern associations of baptism blind us to the point Paul is making so strongly. He is saying that it is quite impossible for anyone who understands what baptism means at all to acquiesce cheerfully in a sinful life. The baptized have died to all like that. So it's a little less like the mouse that we found dead, intact, as though untouched. I'm not sure how he died. And more like the snake we found in the back corner of our yard in the fall. I didn't know what it was. I'd never been approached by a snake before at my own house. But I had gardening tools in the garage, and I had my son at my right hand. And so we fetched some gardening tools. We destroyed that snake. And it was a black snake. I might need it around. I don't know. It probably couldn't hurt me. But we hurt the snake. We killed. We killed it. And it was dead. And it was plain that it was dead. Let's train our minds for a moment on what exactly baptism pictures in death. Death, yes, but more than death. And more than just death and resurrection, but our union with Jesus and his death and his resurrection. This is why he says we're united to him in a death like his, united in a resurrection like his. In the same way that Adam brought death, Jesus brings life as our representative head. And what did the death do? What did Jesus' death do? It put to death our sin in our old life. And what does his resurrection do? It yanks us out of this old place in this old realm and it brings us to a new creation, a new life to walk in newness of life. There's a certain quality to the newness. It's not just new temporally. It's new and that it's entirely improved. Some of us may be tempted to talk about being a Christian only in terms of how we live or how we walk. Christians should live a certain way. Well, true enough, But friend, there is grace. What about the forgiveness of sins? There's no power for a new life apart from the forgiveness of sins. And parents, as we raise our children, we must speak about how we ought to live. It's for their good that they learn from us how to walk in the world. They must hear about the forgiveness of sins. But some people want to talk only about grace that takes away our sins as if that's all grace does. And that's not all grace does. Grace raises you to new life. What kind of new life? Completely new life. The kind of new life that the Bible has been talking about for ages. Romans 3, you'll remember as we read it, said that this gospel of grace was spoken of by the law 
and the prophets. So the law prepared us to receive Christ and know who he is when he comes through its deficiency. It couldn't fix the problem of sin. All those sacrifices couldn't take away sin. All those commands couldn't fix the heart. It repelled us from God, actually. But the law actually positively instructed us concerning the gospel. The law about which he speaks is the law covenant given to Israel through Moses. Think the Ten Commandments. Think the sacrificial system, the temple, and the priesthood, the whole thing. All of that looked forward to this grace that we're hearing about today. And none of that could bring new life. The law could not change the heart. And yet the law looked forward to the day when the heart would be changed. Deuteronomy 36 says this through Moses. The Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. It was always God's intention that sin would be removed forever and that the heart would be changed. And how would that happen? Well, that question is not answered in clear terms early in the Bible. And yet as the Bible unfolds, it gets more plain. And that's where the prophets come in who testified to this grace. Listen with me to the promise from Jeremiah who speaks to a sinful generation but promises them great hope. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. And I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God. And they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brothers, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. And I will remember their sins no more. Here is a promise of a complete salvation that eclipses in every dimension anything that God has done to this point. God will take away all of their sin and they will all know him and they will have new hearts. Ezekiel makes promises of the same sort, different imagery. And I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my rules and obey them. And they shall be my people and I will be their God. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Do you see this? There is the promise in the Old Testament That God will one day make a way to take away all of our sins. But there is more in the promise than that. God is even more gracious than that. He will actually make you new. Give you a new heart. I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Who will do that? God will cause you to do that. The God who takes away your sins will release you from slavery to sin and call you to obedience to him. And you'll be able to do it for he will give you a new heart 
Baptism pictures this. Baptism dramatizes this. This death to the old life. This resurrection to new life. Not by force of human will or decision. It is a picture of the mighty work of God to save a person. This is the image that God in his wisdom has given to us. To picture his salvation. Death and resurrection. Paul protested. He gave us a picture. And he preaches it in verses 6 through 11. He preaches the picture. Look at verse 6. He says, we know. In verse 9, he says, we know. Do you not know that if you are baptized into Christ Jesus? See, he's appealing to what they know. By looking at baptism, what do we know? First, we know what it means to be dead. Verse 6. We know that our old self was crucified with him. Crucified. That's violent. Crucifixion was violent. Killed. And why so violent? We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. So here is God's action. He's telling us what he's done and he's also telling us why he's done it. Listen out for those. We know the mind and the heart of God. Listen out for what he does and when he tells us why he does it. Verse 7, for those who have died have been set free from sin. We know what happened to our old self. If we're in Christ, we know what it means to be dead. And we know something else. Verse 9, we know what it means to be alive. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, he writes, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you must also consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Sin so that grace may abound? May it never be. Sin belonged to your old life. And salvation is salvation not only from the penalty of your sin, but from your old life of sin. It was crucified with him and you've been raised to a whole new life, a better life, immeasurably better. So consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God once for all. He's not going to die again like the sacrifices in the Old Testament. His death was a death once for all and his life is a life forever. Here's what this means for sin and grace as we ponder the relationship between sin and grace, which is the tension that raises this whole chapter to us. We don't need to be afraid of too much grace. We don't need to be afraid of preaching grace, of offering grace, because the grace we preach is not only free, but it is freeing. It's effective. It's full. Grace not only takes sin away, as if to leave us to sin more and promise it would keep taking. Grace takes all of our sin away and it gives new life. Salvation is by grace and not works, but the grace that saves actually works. It's why Paul can say this about grace to Titus. And this stuff's all over the New Testament. For the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. And what does it do? 
training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. How can a sinner be zealous for good works and not sin? By the grace of God, which saves us so that we might renounce sin and which trains us in righteousness. Romans 5, 17. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Jesus died to save you so that you would no longer be under the reign and rule of sin, but you would be under his righteous reign and rule and no new life. It's possible to spoil the New Testament's commands for godly living by detaching it from the grace of God that makes it possible. And I feel for any of you who are in a position where you are repelled by the New Testament's forceful lists and commands against unrighteousness because of preaching that was graceless and not gracious. For the Bible is gracious from beginning to end. The grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce ungodliness. We don't need to be afraid of grace. We just need to preach all of it. God's grace is forever, and it is free. Let us not forget how full it is. And that's why Paul can conclude his section this way. And by the way, we haven't heard a command yet not to sin. He raised the question of sin. He answered it with a no. He's talked for 11 verses about sin and grace. He hasn't told us not to sin yet. But here in conclusion, verse 12 through 14, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you are not under law, but under grace. And so in conclusion, Paul says, grace abounds so that you may not sin. Sin so that grace may abound, may it never be. Sin abounds so that you may not sin. Grace abounds. Did I say that wrong? Something goes on in the preacher's head, by the way. If any of you have done public speaking, like words just come out and it's unplanned. Forgive me when I don't know that happens. Paul can talk about sin for 11 verses without giving a command. For 11 verses, he's talked about what Jesus did to it in us. But now he issues the command. And so, brothers and sisters, do not let the sin of anger reign in your mortal bodies that belong to this age under Adam to obey its passions and to speak a cruel word to your wife and to slander your friend. Let not the sin of sexual immorality reign in your mortal body to obey its passions 
as if there is any life beyond that click on the screen or that search in Google. And let not the sin of covetousness reign in your mortal body to obey its passions, as if you don't have everything you need in Jesus and you need a bigger house. And let not the sin of laziness and gluttony and drunkenness reign in your mortal body to obey its passions. Glory to God for his grace. You are not a slave to these things. That is true. And if you are in Christ, while you may indulge sin, and while you may let sin reign in your mortal body, sin does not reign. In fact, you were an instrument, a tool in the hand of Satan for his purpose, but you have been set free from his grip. And as you feel heavy under the weight of the command to let go of your sin, be encouraged that you are actually not a slave to it anymore if you're in Christ. So live in the grip of God. Present yourselves to him as an instrument, a tool for his righteous purposes. And maybe you would say this morning, I actually am a slave to sin. In your experience, it's what you know. You obey the slave master of your desires and your passions that you inherited from birth in Adam. Know from Scripture that you are condemned under sin and there is no safety for you apart from death with Christ and resurrection to new life. And be encouraged that if you flee to Christ in faith and after that, Portray it and picture it with the sign of baptism, your death and resurrection with him. That you can be free from the sin that enslaves you. That you love even as you hate it because it destroys you. And it's destroyed your family and your friends. And yet you're enslaved to it. God offers you by his grace, as long as you are alive, the chance to come to Jesus by faith and to die to sin and to be raised to walk in newness of life. Shall we sin so that grace may abound? Friends, may it never be. Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. Present yourselves to God as an instrument of of righteousness. So back to baptism. Back to baptism. What does baptism mean? Well, it's a sign of God's glorious new covenant salvation, whereby through the death and resurrection of Jesus, we die to sin and are raised to new life. And who is it for? Well, it's for those who by grace have died to sin and been raised to new life. And this sign doesn't make that happen. This sign is not some kind of promise that it will happen. This sign is a public recognition on the part of the person baptized and all of us here today who baptize him members at Heritage, that this has indeed happened in Zach. In other words, we baptize Christians, we baptize believers. And it's why I've been spending time with Zach, and it's why he shared his testimony with you. So we can all be sure enough of that. How does baptism work for our lives? Well, it ever reminds us that we are his, and that our life is his, and it teaches us about the new life that is his, ours in Christ. And what should we be thinking of when we baptize Zach in a few minutes? We should praise God for his work of salvation in Zach. And we should plan to say things to Zach like, don't you know that you died to sin? If we need to. We should say, let not sin reign in your mortal body. 
we should say, praise God for the new life that he has given you. So walk in newness of life. And friend, present yourself as an instrument of righteousness to God. And as we watch Zach be baptized, we also think about our own baptism if you've been baptized to signal the conversion God has given to you. We're a congregation of 600 members or so. It's easy just to watch on and forget, but we must not. Baptism is a baptism in Christ's name, and it's a baptism into the body of Christ, and what we're about to do is just awesome. So let's pray, and then we'll sing, and then we'll do it. Father, we give you thanks and praise for the book of Romans and for the gospel of free and full and forever grace revealed there. And we thank you that this grace does not merely take away our sin, as gracious as that is, but it makes us alive and causes us to walk in newness of life in him. Father, we give you thanks for Zach and his life and that you have saved him. And we pray that this sign of baptism would not be taken lightly by us, but that as we look on, we would see something violent happening in the picturing of the death of a man and his resurrection to new life. Zach, yes, but first, Christ, crucified and raised from the dead. In whose name we pray, amen.